Yes, we're back once again this week with episode number 48 of Digging Deeper into the Book of Exodus. In our Digging Deeper this week, we look at the last half of Exodus 12 and the Passover. All the preparations have been taken care of. The Israelites are in their houses eating the Passover lamb with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. The Egyptians were going about their normal evening activities. Some were scared enough of Yahweh's threat that they were celebrating the Passover, but in fear, not in faith. They had been through enough with the first nine plagues. They weren't taking a chance with this tenth monstrous plague. They go through the motions as with the Israelites, hedging their bets. It works out for them, but it is not an example we should follow. We pick up in verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. At midnight, the entire world changes in Egypt. I'm not sure how many were awake at midnight. There wasn't much you could do in the middle of the night in the 15th century B.C. However, Pharaoh wakes up in the middle of the night. Was it God that woke him up? or his own conscience. The world may never know, but he wanted to see if this most recent threat from Yahweh would happen like the rest. Well, it did. There was not a house where someone was not dead. From Pharaoh's palace to the most insignificant of slums, as God provided for the size and wealth of the Israelites in the choice of the Passover lamb, God doesn't excuse anyone from the death of the firstborn. I want to take a moment to discuss the importance of this tenth plague. Not just that it's the last one before Pharaoh releases the Israelites. Not just because it was the one that affected the most people. The death of the firstborn has great theological implications for salvation. A quick rundown from the scriptures. Abel's offering was from the firstborn of the flock, and it was accepted by God, Genesis 4.4. God begins his dialogue with Pharaoh, calling Israel his firstborn. Exodus 4, 22 and 23. As a consequence of the Passover, the firstborn will be consecrated to Yahweh. Exodus 13, 2. The Levites were consecrated instead of all the firstborn in Israel. Numbers 3, 45. The Messiah would become the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Psalm 89, 27. Jesus is Mary's firstborn son, Luke 2, 7. Christians are conformed to the image of his son in order that he might become the firstborn among many brothers, Romans 8, 29. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, the firstborn from the dead, Colossians 1, 15 and 18. The church is the assembly of the firstborn, Hebrews 12, 23. Being the firstborn is very important, not just as a legal tradition. God has a very specific image he uses when Jesus is referred to as the firstborn. 
When Pharaoh hears the great cry that arises from Egypt, he demands Moses and Aaron take the Israelites away. They had become more trouble than they were worth. All the previous items Pharaoh had tried to use as bargaining chips to get the Israelites to return to Egypt, he wanted to get rid of immediately. But Pharaoh wanted something in return. Yes, they could take everything, but Pharaoh wanted a blessing. What was he expecting? What kind of reprieve could he possibly want out of this? His son raised from the dead? Would that have made him feel better? What about the rest of the Egyptians? Would he want all the firstborn resurrected as a blessing? We're not told if Moses said anything else after this. Moses goes straight into the Exodus, as we pick up in verse 33. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up and their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. The Israelites plundered their oppressors before they left Egypt. Everything they had was bundled up so they could leave quickly. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Why were the Egyptians eager to get rid of their own stuff so the Israelites would leave? We shall all be dead, was a primary thought. They wanted no more to do with Yahweh than they needed. Picking up in verse 37, as the people of Israel leave Egypt. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about six about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. Now the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. Now we get our first geographical clue to the land of Goshen's location. Pharaoh had given this land to Jacob as a present for being Joseph's father. It is located around Ramses in the northeast part of the Nile Delta. The city of Succoth was not very far away. Therefore, this massive multitude would be able to stay together. How many people left Egypt during the Exodus? The scriptures tell us there were 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. Many estimate that there were an equal number of both women and children. That puts us up to 1.8 million people. And that's just the Israelites. A mixed multitude also went up with them. The Egyptians who followed Yahweh's commands for the Passover were saved and left with the Israelites. These Egyptians had come to faith and were saved because of their faith and included into the people as they prepared to enter the promised land. The Israelites spent 430 years in Egypt. God had prophesied this to Abram in Genesis 15:13, where he says they will be afflicted for 400 years. This brings questions to those who try to reconcile the two numbers. Could a new pharaoh rise over Egypt who didn't know Joseph in only 30 years? 
Exodus began with this event. The Israelites enslaved in Egypt. The Bible doesn't give us an answer to this question. However, if a new pharaoh comes to power and sees the sheer number of Israelites who could easily turn against him, he enslaves them to protect his position. Verse 42 has great impact for worship in our society with its never-ending hustle and bustle. This same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. The Passover was not just some peculiar feast for a celebration. It was primarily a vigil, a night of watching, a night where the Israelites waited for Yahweh's salvation. This is handed down to the New Testament church through the Easter vigil. Unfortunately, there are not many congregations who hold this wonderful service. It is seen as too slow and boring because we are simply waiting for the Easter morning services. We have decided to skip this service and go straight from Good Friday to Easter sunrise. I'm not saying they aren't connected. They are two sides of salvation's coin. However, the Easter vigil brings out many of the connections between the two sides. Part of the historic vigil service is a service with 12 readings from the Old Testament. All passages linked to God's salvation as preached by the scriptures. One of the services of this podcast, in all its facets, is a series of devotions on all 12 readings of the vigil service. They are broadcast hourly between 7 p.m. Central on Holy Saturday and 6 a.m. on Easter morning. I encourage you to listen to them when they are broadcast April 11th and 12th, 2020, or go to wrestlingwiththeology.org and search Victory in Lent. These readings and devotions are designed to help us wait for Easter, knowing that it is proof of our victory in Christ's resurrection. God now speaks to Moses and Aaron in verses 43 to 51. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired servant may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. No uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their host. God makes one thing plain. No one outside the covenant can eat the Passover. This gives an initial insight of Israelite proselytization. The Israelites wanted all those who were with them to be able to eat the Passover. This meant not only a change in religion, but a change in ethnicity. This, of course, is national ethnicity, not genetic ethnicity. Only a miracle from God could change that. The Passover makes its most crucial connection to Jesus' sacrifice with the prohibition of breaking the lamb's bones. From here, we have David's prophecy in Psalm 34:20. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. John quotes this passage during the crucifixion when the soldiers were breaking the legs to hasten their deaths. John 19, 36. 
when they came to Jesus, he was already dead. Not one of his bones was broken because he is the true one and only Passover lamb. So now we've made it through the Passover event. Next month we get into chapter 13 with the Feast of Unleavened Bread leading into the pillars of cloud and fire that lead the children of Israel through the wilderness into the promised land throughout the books of Exodus through Deuteronomy and into Joshua. But we'll get to that in a bit. I encourage you, look at this, listen to this month's podcast again, go back a couple of months to the last Digging Deeper where we covered the first half. The Passover is the most pivotal event in all of Old Testament history. Everything else that involves Israel is based in this defining moment. Just as baptism is the defining moment for Christians. Not because there's something special in us, not because there's something special in the water, but that water connects us to the crucifixion of Jesus, which is the most pivotal moment in all of human history. Because he is the true Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world. May this strengthen you as you wrestle with theology this week. Amen.